kind of way. So uh, as Thomas just mentioned too, we are beginning uh, the book of Daniel. Um, at Park too, just an FYI is that at Park, we really want to prioritize kind of preaching through books of the Bible at uh, like the, the entire, you know, each verse, each passage throughout the entire time, because we realize that the scripture has many great things to say, but also that we want to preach things that may not be talked about or maybe more controversial. And we want to make sure that we do that. And so Daniel has a lot of good stuff for us. And so I'm um, excited kind of for this ride. We'll be going through it all the way until Easter. Um, but if you can, uh, if a Bible phone, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 1. We'll be in the first seven verses for today. So Daniel, kind of two-thirds in. Um, there are Bibles to my left, too, uh, if you need one. Now I'll be reading from the ESV version, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So let me just read, uh, pray, and then just dive right in. Here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, uh, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he, ca he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. God, we come before you today and just dig into this book of Daniel. Um, God, we just ask that you would be um, the lead, that you would be the guide, that you would be the power that speaks to us, God, that you would help us to know more of who you are through your word um, in the life of Daniel and his friends. Um, and so, God, I ask that whatever words I speak that are not of you would be quickly forgotten, but that the words that you desire to produce good fruit in us would be remembered, would um, be planted, would be rooted, and would produce good fruit um, for your sake and your glory. And so, God, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with a really important question here, okay? How many of you love the Marvel movies? Just give me a raise your hand. Just be honest, okay? There's not many of you. Okay, God, okay, no. Um, uh, uh, this is disappointing for me. Anyways, uh, I, I personally love the Marvel movies. I'm like one of those people that like knows all the characters, like knows all the storylines. Um, I think you're crazy if you like walk out of the theater when the credits come on. Like I'm like that kind of guy, okay? Um, but one of the amazing things about the Marvel kind of movies and series is that, you know, they're even TV shows now, but what's amazing is that this kind of interconnected world, this kind of, you know, um, production has created with introducing many kinds of heroes and stories that create kind of really one big story. So much so that if you go see like a new Marvel movie now, uh, it's, it's hard to really understand it if you've only watched like one or two other ones. It's really hard. Um, it's kind of like reading a book from the middle rather than from the beginning. 
Like, who's that character? Like, what's their power? Or who's that mysterious entrance of that person there? Or is he or she important? Or why in the world is everyone turning into, like, this bonfire ash? Like, you know, people get really kind of, like, confused by watching it. Because though all the Marvel experts, like, love this stuff and eat it all up and write all these articles, if you aren't familiar with the whole story, the movie can be more confusing than impressive. Or worse, you have really no idea what's going on. Now, when we enter the book of Daniel, it's, or really any prophetic book, it's similar. If we don't understand the broader narrative of what's going on around Daniel and during Daniel, we just won't understand the fullness of the story. You might enjoy like the popular stories like the lion's den or the fiery furnace, but you won't understand why Daniel is there, why his name changed, or who are these like uh, Babylonians or these prophecies at the end of Daniel that are really confusing that most of us skip, right? And I would also say that, you know, this is kind of a short lesson of prophetic books of the Bible, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, like all of these books, the prophetic books, which actually is the same length as our entire New Testament, to understand what goes on in those books and in Daniel, you have to understand the context that is happening in. In other words, and I learned this in seminary, context is key. Or for them, context is king. It's always important to understand what's going on in the book. And so for today, I, I want to kind of give an overview of the book of Daniel because if we're going to go through each story and each chapter and each verse, it's really hard to understand it unless you know the context of what's going on. So to do that, I have really kind of three questions to kind of go through um, in my sermon. And the three questions should be on there, are on there. It's what's happening to the Israelites? the people of God, who is Daniel, and how can we relate with this story? And so let's start there. What is happening with the Israelites during this time? Let me just read again verse 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is in Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this, just these two verses, they summarize the entire destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, which are the last remnants of the people of Israel. You see, the entire Old Testament story is about Israel, God's chosen people who have this covenantal relationship with God, which they call Yahweh, which is the God that we worship that if they would obey God's commandments, God would bless them. But if they didn't obey his commandments and worship God alone, God would repeatedly warn them that if they did not repent and turn back to God away from their evil ways, God would punish them. And so this goes back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is one of the most important chapters, I would say, of the Old Testament because it, it outlines the covenant promise and the also covenant curse that God has with his people. Let me just read the curse portion in Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 50. It says, Because you, the Israelites, did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. 
and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. And, and spoiler alert, this happens. They don't obey, but ultimately they do a lot of disobeying. And, you know, I'm going through some scripture here, but just listen to the prophet Isaiah, who actually prophesizes against the Israelites during this time. Isaiah 1, 21. He, um, he says, but really the Lord is speaking through him. He says, see how the faithful city, which is Jerusalem, has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. In verse 23, it says, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And if you read the rest of Isaiah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you see that these sins are just the tip of the iceberg of what the Israelites are doing in this time. Their wickedness in this time would make us uncomfortable. That's how drastic it is. And so after centuries and centuries of this, God says, this is enough. And he prophesizes their end. And in Isaiah chapter 3, there's a, a portion of this. And just read, just look at this with me. He's saying to the Israelites, instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion, which is Jerusalem, will lament and mourn. Destitute. She will sit on the ground. This is heavy stuff, but it's important for us to realize because Deuteronomy 28 has come true. And after hundreds and hundreds of prophets trying to turn back the people of Israel away from their sins, God says this is enough, that their disobedience and their sins are becoming more and more wicked. And so because God is steadfast in love and also just in his ways, he has to punish sin, even though it's towards his own people. And so verse 1 of Daniel is the completion of Israel's judgment. God sends the Babylonian Empire, the world power in that day, to conquer the rest of Israel. And if you go to 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, you'll get a more detailed account of this. Um, I'm not going to read portions of it, but you'll see there that there is a siege, that there is a famine, that you see the Babylonians breaking in and, and killing many. You see them taking captives back to Babylon in exile. You see the entire city burned down, the walls destroyed, the temple of God, Israel's pride and treasure being destroyed and ransacked, which is the majority of verse 2, which we see, and how the precious vessels of gold that they had in the temple of God would be taken and, and put into Babylon. Now, in these two verses, what is communicated, if you were an Israelite reading this, would be great shame. It would be great shame that year after year after hundreds of years that you did not turn back to God and obey his ways and that God would annihilate your entire city and people, that, they were, that the people of God would be scattered throughout the known world, that their leaders would be prisoners in Babylon, their national treasures would be taken from them, that they had no one to blame but themselves. 
So as a result, if you're, if you're reading these two verses, you're feeling embarrassed. You're, you're heartbroken. This is the worst period of time for the Israelites. You're homeless. You, you feel hopeless in this circumstance. And so as we look at the broader narrative of Scripture, Daniel is happening in this very depressing time. And so for us, when we look at Daniel, it's, it's, we have to remember this, that Daniel and his friends, they're not like happy-go-lucky guys, just like, you know, excited to do life here. But they're coming out of this season where their entire people, their, their glorious kind of history is pretty much destroyed. And what then happens is then what we see in Daniel. So then, that's kind of the context of Israel. So then who is Daniel now? Who is Daniel and his friends? So let's look um, in the verse 3 to 5. I'm not going to read it again. But what you see here is that the way the Babylonians conquered cities and nations, that they would essentially take the cream of the crop of the men, the young men, um, teenage, I mean, mainly teenage boys, probably around 14 to 15 years old, and they would take them. So not just Israelites, but Egyptians and other people, they would bring them to Babylon and they would train them eventually to be like ambassadors to the other places for them to serve the Babylonian empire. And Daniel was one of these men. Some say he could have been from a royal family. Some say that he might have been a cousin or a nephew of the king of Israel. Um, Again, he was was young, so 14 to 15, which makes him moldable and teachable. And as one of those privileged men, he would have the opportunity to be trained in Babylon, to, to learn their language, their history, their way of life, perhaps even go through some physical training as well. They would have been, this would have been the premier education and training of any of the world of any kind it's like if you put harvard and west point and stanford and and maybe university of chicago together then it would produce this amazing educational training place where they could be trained but not only that these men in verse 5 it states that they would receive the king's food the king's wine which which literally is translated as royal rations So they would also get the five-star treatment. They would get the best type of food, the best type of accommodations, all for three whole years in Babylon. So amidst like a hopeless situation for Israel, it seems like Daniel is getting a good deal, right? Well, yes and no. And this is kind of the tension that we'll see throughout the book of Daniel. In verses 6 to 7, we see that Daniel, he's also the writer of this book as well, he's writing their names down, who they are, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But then in verse 7, he says that their names have been changed by the chief uh, eunuch or the chief official. And their names are given, Babylonian names are in that time, uh, Akkadian, which is the language back there. But what's the deal? Why would he write this? Well, back in that time, names are a big deal, probably even more than nowadays, where names had incredible meaning. They would represent where you came from, your character, who you belong to, and many different things. So, for example, Daniel's name in Hebrew, it means God is my judge. Um, so God being the God of Israel, God is my ju- judge, which, you know, it, it talks about who God is, where you're coming from, and an attribute of God. But his new name, Balthazar, in Akkadian, in the Babylonian language, it means Bel, which is the, one of the main, many pagan gods of Babylon, protect the king, protect the king of Babylon. 
And so it's very much, it's switched. And if you look at every single other one of the names, so the other names, I'm not going to go through all of them, but each of their names have an attribute or a characteristic of God, of Yahweh, but their name is then changed into a name that attributes a quality or a characteristic of one of the pagan Babylonian gods. And this is important because not only is their name changing, but the Babylonians were trying to assimilate these young men into the language of the Babylonians, the ways but ultimately to adopt their belief and religion. Possibly why they also gave Daniel and his friends the best of the best was that they were luring them to not just follow Babylon empire and uh, imperial ways, but to also change who they worshiped, which we see this tension as we get throughout the rest of the stories in Daniel. So for Daniel and his friends, they are living now in this constant tension. On one side, you have Daniel um, and his friends who are Israelites, who remember where they came from, their people and their way, which was focused on God's covenant, on their relationship with the one true God, Yahweh, that God would promise to be with them if they obeyed and followed him and worshiped him alone. But on the other side is the reality that the nation of Israel is gone, that they are 800 miles away from their home in Jerusalem in a foreign land, among foreign people, worshiping foreign gods, that they are being offered the best of the best to not just live there, but to adapt their ways and beliefs because Babylon is the most powerful nation in the world, or empire in the world. So power, prestige, wealth, whatever they wanted would be at their fingertips if they submitted to all things Babylon. But that would be also disobeying God's word and God's law. So the overarching question we can kind of ask in the book of Daniel is what will Daniel and his friends do? What will they do? Will they fully assimilate into the Babylonian way and forsake God and their people? Or will they resist Babylon and maybe get persecuted or even killed? How will Daniel learn to navigate this tension, this complexity of faith and work and life in Babylon? Will he have courage or wisdom or will we have fear or anxiety? And ultimately, the question that looms over most likely the Israelites who are, who are also reading this is that will God be with Daniel? Will he show up? And is there hope for Daniel and the people of Israel during this time? And these are the questions that we are faced in this book, but I think those questions are not too far off from the questions that we are asking in our own lives. Is God with us? How, God, do we live in this tension in this world today? And this leads me to my last question that I'll, that I'll finish on, is how do we relate with this story? Let me explain it this way. Um, in 2017, uh, the United Nations reported that there were 258 million um, international migrants throughout the world. And you kind of see this kind of graph here. It's, it's pretty, it's a well-done graph. I didn't make it, but it's really well done in terms of how people are moving all across the world. And in 2020, that number is actually much higher. It's 281 million migrants are international people who live uh, in places that are not their home, which includes about 3.6% of the world's population. 
And the reasons are many, and we know this. There's war, there's famine, there's better opportunity, jobs, family, and, and much more. And people are moving all across the world for many different reasons. And just even in Chicago, um, the studies show that about 20% of Chicago, suburbs and city included, um, 20% are immigrants or children of immigrants. And so it shows that there are many, many people who are kind of living as exiles, who are not home, but are living away from home. And as the world globalizes, more and more people will not be living where they are originally from. So as a result, many, maybe even some of you have felt this, where you feel different, where you feel like an other person that doesn't belong here, where you might miss home, or you're upset at your forced relocation, or you're upset that you don't quite get some of the cultural nuances, or you don't look like the people who live here, that you might try to fit in as hard as, as, you, want, as, as you could, but you just can't fit in, or you you know, you just want to go back home. There are many different um, people who are feeling this reality, especially in the States, right now. But if you are also a Christ follower, what's unique is that if you look at Scripture, especially the New Testament, being in exile is also part of our Christian identity. If you look at 1 Peter 2.11, Peter now is writing to um, the church that's scattered throughout the known world. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage against your soul. The apostle Peter knew that the church would be scattered throughout the known world, and he calls them exiles or sojourners or foreigners because of their different physical locations, but also because of a spiritual reality where Paul hints at in Philippians 3.20, when he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here reminds us that our true home is not here on earth, but it's in heaven with Christ. So as Christians, we should all be feeling this exilic tension in our lives. That as Christ followers, the ways of this world, the brokennesses of this world, the sin in this world, or the pursuits of the world, or the hopes of the world just don't seem to align or feel at home for us. We feel a little bit out of place. We feel maybe even unwelcome. Our values are no longer validated. And though, you know, this, this, you know I, I think popular culture kind of th- says that America is like this Christian nation, but that, that's far from the truth. Our nation might have some Christian morality things that are similar, but America values things like, um, these are not, I mean, some of these are bad things, but not all of them are bad things, where they value individual freedom, They value, I mean, I think as a country, we value money and materialism and power. And those things are not necessarily things that God values in his kingdom. And if we look at studies now in America, and you guys can, I mean, you can look online, but many people think that we're, you know, majority of people are Christian. But if you look at some more careful studies being done, if you look at those who are practicing Christians, the number of that percentage goes down drastically. I don't have the exact numbers, but in a book called Faith of Exiles, they surveyed, surveyed all the young people, kind of like between 18 to 30 in the United States, or a majority of them, and they reported only about 10% are really practicing 
Christians, which is a way lower number than most people would think. Now, the reality is, is that we as Christ followers live in this exilic tension, this tension where we feel like we are called to follow God, but the world does not want to do the same. Do you feel like an exile in your place of work? Do you feel like an exile or feel like you don't belong in your family or your group of friends? Do you feel like you don't belong in this city or in this nation? And I think um, for me, what's, um, you know, my kind of personal story is that I, I've always felt like I've been in exile. I mean, this is kind of like my story, so it may not relate to you. But for me, I, I grew up born to Korean immigrants in, in a majority white blue collar neighborhood. Um, I didn't fit in because I was Korean American in my school neighborhood, but also um, even amongst other Koreans, I didn't fit in because I really wasn't Korean. I was kind of more Korean American. So I was like kind of in the middle of every circumstance. And to make matters more difficult for me growing up, uh, my family went to church and I believed in Jesus very early on. And none of my friends and community believed that either. So I kind of felt like a double exile, if that even is possible. And to be honest, there were many times in my own story where I would give anything to stop feeling like an exile. But no matter what, no matter how I tried to fit in, tried to belong, tried to be more Korean, more American, more like my friends, or even in my own effort, more Christian, it left me unsatisfied. It left me like hungry and thirsty for something more. And the harder I tried, the more I felt like in exile than before. And I think for many of us, if we're, you know, maybe that's something that happens more in, in your immediate context because of where you're from, or maybe as a Christian, you just feel stuck. You feel stuck that you can't get out of, um, for Daniel, Babylon. You can't get out of this exile. And I think many of us feel like uh, many of our, how, how many of our cars did this past week. Um, I don't know about you all, but uh, my car was stuck in like 10 inches of snow, uh, and I had the glorious privilege of digging it out, you know? Um, and if you know, if you're a good Chicagoan, you should know that you don't just get in your car and try to accelerate forward and backward, forward and backward in that snow. Because what happens? You get more stuck. You just start digging yourself a hole where it's nearly impossible to get out of that spot. And I think for many of us, we don't really, for I guess if you're not from Chicago, you don't realize you have to get out of the car and actually shovel the snow out. But what if that snow is just too much for you to dig out on your own? What if no amount of salt or shoveling can get you out? You would be stuck in that snow forever. And I think that's kind of what this tension is, what Daniel is feeling, and what many of us are feeling in this day, where we're trying to be at home. We're trying to feel like, um, we're, we're trying to, to maybe even just fit in in this world. But no matter which side you choose, trying to be a better Christian even, you're stuck if you are always trying to get out on your own. You keep pressing the accelerator, or you go into reverse and keep trying to go back, and you're trying to get out of this exilic kind of feel or this feeling of not being at home in your heart, and you just don't know what to do. And I think the hope in this, at least first seven verses of, of Daniel and what it lo looks like for us is in verse two. The hope in verse two is the three words, 
the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, or King Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. And the reason those three words are important is because it reminds us that it was not the Babylonians that conquered Israel. It was the Lord that gave them into their hands. It wasn't man's power that got them out or that captured them. It was God's act. And if you look more closely, um, you can't see it in your English, but in verse 2, it says the Lord gave. And you notice that uh, the L is capitalized, but the O and the R and the D are not. And in most translations, when, the, when God's divine name, Yahweh, is mentioned in Scripture, it's usually done by capitalizing all, those, um, all, all the letters there. But in here, it's not. And it's because it's a different word. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means owner ruler or sovereign lord and i believe daniel is using this word particularly here because he wants his readers to realize that god is still adonai in this situation that he is still sovereign he is still in control that though you were as israelites and even for us a wavering people though we are a wavering people they that, that our God will never unwaver, that he will always be in control. And the hope for Daniel and the hope for us, honestly, is that as we are stuck, as we feel, in, as we are feeling like in this tension with work or life or whatever we're feeling like, is that God in his sovereign plan would then one day come as an exile himself. That he would leave the comforts of his home be out of place here on earth and experience the life and pain of this world, fully man yet fully God. And he would see us abandoned and stuck in this world, broken with sin and death, but instead of leaving us to suffer on our own, he would not only lend a helping hand, church, but he would offer his life for us. And this was the hope and promise that Daniel and the Israelites we're waiting for that one day on that cross Jesus would die for not just the Israelite sins but all humanity's sins and then he would resurrect and ascend and then say that whoever would believe in me and follow me would have eternal life and be transformed this is all in that word those three words the Lord gave the Lord is in control and even for us during this time I don't know what we're going through. Even as, as Tim was leading worship and as, as Esther prayed and Thomas prayed, even the, the theme that you see here is that we don't know what's happening in our lives. We, we feel out of control in most periods of time. You know, just even this week with the snow and with COVID, I, I definitely felt out of control. I felt very frustrated, to be honest, trying to dig out the car, take my kids to daycare. It was, it was quite a mess. Kids falling in the snow, it, it, was, it was a mess, okay? We don't know if we're in control. But in the book of Daniel, what we see is throughout each story, each verse, that our God is sovereign and he is in control. That he is even leading Daniel and his three friends in the most um, you know, pagan or oppressive or difficult circumstance possible. God is, is still in control. And so I want to just ask this question to wrap up our time. What tension or what exilic tension do you need Jesus to be with you in right now? What tension are you feeling that you need 
hope in, that you need help in, that you need support in? Is it in, again, like something in your work, your, you know, your boss that's crazy, or your coworkers that are annoying you? Is it your family and your kids driving you crazy? Or is it in your schooling where you just, you know, you feel so stressed and anxious about the future? Whatever it may be, what Daniel reminds us is that God is in control and that he invites us to ask whatever help we need and God promises, especially when Jesus comes and the spirit that's in us, to be with us always. Let me close in prayer. Father, we, um, we are grateful that amidst the chaos, amidst things that we can't control, even in the story, God, where Daniel and his friends felt like their walls were against uh, their back were against the walls and they had no idea what they were doing, why they were there, why you know, the entire nation, their people were destroyed. But yet, Daniel, in the writing of the Lord gave, reminds them, and even us, God, that you are in control. That even though you gave the people of Israel to the Babylonians, that you still had a greater plan. Um, and that that greater plan came through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that, and Jesus is still at work in us um, 3,000 years later. Uh, from when Daniel was alive. And so, God, we are so grateful that you are sovereign. We're so, great, we're so grateful that you are here with us, um, that you are leading us. And I just pray, oh God, that for whoever is in this tension, whatever tension that we are feeling um, as an individual, as a family, or wherever we're at, God, I just ask that during this week that you would be with them, that you would remind them of your comfort and care, but that also that you are all powerful, that you even control nations like the, like the Babylonian Empire. And so please be with them, Lord, guide them, help them in whatever circumstance um, they find them in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.